Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to episode 179 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And here we are, the penultimate episode of the podcast. And it's fair to say on this journey so far, we have discovered that Paul Weller has built one of the most prolific and influential careers in British music. And in this episode, we get to peek behind the curtain. His manager, Claire Moon, opens up about her professional journey leading up to that first fateful meeting with Paul at V2 Records and how she later became his manager overseeing the business operations at Black Barn Studios. We'll hear how it works planning the calendar year, promoting albums, gigs, protecting his back catalogue. Claire reveals how she strategically manages Paul Weller's enduring career. What really came through to me on this chat at Black Barn Studios was their deep mutual trust that allows her to support his constant drive to make music on his own terms. We definitely get that deeper understanding of his relentless creative spirit, how he's often already busy conjuring up new projects as previous albums are still being promoted, for instance, launching a clothing line or even taking an acting role in a movie. We're going to talk about that as well. And what really comes through to me is that Claire makes clear her role is to support Paul's ambitions, not to control them, as you'd hear in a traditional manager sense, I guess. A trust that has allowed one of music's true innovators to continue evolving without losing his essence. Get ready for an all-access pass into Paul Weller's world with this illuminating conversation. It's a huge, huge honour to have Mooney on the podcast to share her experiences in the music industry and at Black Barn HQ. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it. 
Claire Moon, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Nice to meet you after all this time. I know, this is mad. This is like a three-year journey and here we are. Yeah. Congratulations. The podcast has done such good business for you. Well done. (laughs) Everyone loves it. Paul loves it. (laughs) Well, my mum said to me, she goes, oh, that Paul Weller, you're promoting him so much. You are. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I should ask, because everybody in Weller Circle seems to have a little nickname, are you Mooney to everybody? I'm always Mooney to most people. Paul, if he calls me Claire, I know that we're having a serious conversation about something. (laughs) So Mooney's fine, Claire's fine, but yeah, I'm normally Mooney to most of the people in our inner circle. Okay. Now look, here we are at Paul Weller HQ, Black Barn Studios, and your office. Yeah. This is my desk and Kenny or Bill, whichever one's in, sits opposite me. This was actually John's desk, which is why we've kept them. They're the original ones from the Solid Bond offices, I believe. So we don't want to get rid of them and modernise them because they've got history in these desks. We're here. This is where we work. Tell me about this room because the amount of discs on the walls, I mean, as you'd expect, right, from Paul's, what, 45 year plus career now. There's some impressive discs and also it's a bit depressing because you look at them and realise that in the 80s or whatever, that's when you could sell a load of proper records and it not just be streaming or downloads or what have you. Um, But yeah, it is impressive and it's nice to have it here, I think. Everyone, when they come into this room, a bit like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And unfortunately, record companies don't make the discs anymore because of we've gone digital, but we love having them until Paul takes them off the wall to give to a charity or whatever. (laughs) No, don't. So you value them more than Mr. Weller? (laughs) I don't really value them, but I think they're just a nod to his achievements. We should keep them. I've got many other things that we can give to our lovely charities that we support. That have gone from obviously right through from in the city all yeah. the way up to when was that change over? Do you think in terms of like the, the you know them being presented to you guys by the record company? Yeah, well, I think Saturn's Pattern was the last one. So yeah, that's quite a while ago now. I mean, everything's a bit skewed post COVID, but yeah, that was a while ago, I think. And we'll talk about the industry and how yeah. it's changed in your time within it and Paul's time within it. Even like the last few years, it seems to be trying to keep ahead of the industry and understand where it's going. It's almost like an impossible job, isn't it? Yeah. And that's where I rely on our record company and our marketing managers at Polydor who are brilliant, whereby two years ago, I would not be having conversations about TikTok. Now I'm having conversations about TikTok. And, you know, it's things like that where it just evolves. And even for an artist that's in his 60s and a prolific artist, you have to sort of keep up with what the industry is doing and keep on top of it. But I'm supported by a record company. That's essentially their role in it. We're also surrounded by the big awards as well yeah. on this shelf over here. I mean, these these things are massive. They weigh an absolute ton. I know, particularly the Ivan Novellos. Yeah, there's some Enemy Awards, some Ivan Novellos, Mercury Music Prize, two Brits. All the awards get kept here. Paul doesn't have them at home. Those of us that follow Paul, read the articles and stuff, you'd get the impression that none of that means anything to him. I feel that that's not the case, right? He's not aiming for it, but the recognition's always nice, right? I mean, he's really humble. That's the thing. And whilst he might say, oh, I don't care, I don't care about awards or whatever, I think it means something to him. And when I say humble, it's because the amount of times I get emailed, we'd like to present Paul with a Brit or Paul's been nominated for a Brit or anything like that. And I sit down and I'm all excited and I say to him, hey, Paul, guess what? And he'll just go, what, me? I'm like, yeah, he's like, why do you want to give it to me? I'm like, because you're Paul Weller. Like, <laughs> you know. um, so yeah, I think he, it's not what he's in it for. I think that's the point mm. of difference. It's nice and it's an added bonus when he's rewarded for things, but he's mainly about just the music. Let's talk about Black Barn. Yeah. Paul Weller HQ. Such an important place, not just the epicenter of all the Weller operations, obviously, but as a studio, this is home. Definitely. It's really home for all of us, actually. Paul's, I think, at his most comfortable being here. It's his place. Everything here is how he wants it. The studio is set up how he wants it. And as you can see, when you go in there, there's all different pieces of artwork and Peter Blake and there's 
the Stanley Road jukebox and the David Bowie lightning bolt. And there's lots and lots of different things there that are very him. And I think it's just a really relaxed vibe. And actually, when we have other bands come here, everyone loves Black Barn. Everyone, Noel loves it here. Like developing artists that Paul gives free studio time are just like, whoa, this is amazing. And, you know, we own a couple of the cottages, or he owns a couple of the cottages next door so people can stay. And that's really good. Often you think of studios as being clinical and them having to be cleared of clutter. But actually the the studio is, I mean, it's packed full of so many vintage instruments yeah. and or like original 60s 70s instruments and like you say there's things on the wall and stuff it's you get the feeling like a sound engineer would build a studio from scratch this isn't the thing they'd create but it, it it gives an incredible vibe that studio right yeah it does and you're so right every other recording studio we've been in for different reasons normally when we're recording big strings because black bond is a good size but it's not massive to put an orchestra in it abbey road is a slightly different thing because of the history to that building but most recording studios are very clinical and just sort of blue walls and wooden floors and people being very quiet Mm. and respectful around it it's not like that here this is um we have lots of people coming and going all the time and lots of people come down and just watch the band rehearse or just pop in to say hi to paul or us or whatever and it's really lovely let's talk about how this journey first started for you so your discovery of paul weller's music when would that have been (laughs) were you a fan let's be honest go on Um, no i was a fan and incredibly like obviously before I started working for him, I knew who he was. I was, you'd have to live under a rock to not know who he was. And I was a fan and I liked a lot of his music. I can't sit here and say to you, I was a diehard fan and I couldn't tell you about obscure releases from, you know, the jam or the style council, what have you. And it was definitely the nineties era of Paul that I was more aware of. But actually I think when I met him, I think the fact that I wasn't a super fan held me in good stead because I don't get starstruck by people either. I think that's a really good thing because it was just had a very normal relationship with him professionally. And yeah, I mean, my respect for him has just grown and grown. I'd say the 90s was the era that introduced him to me. And I understand that you you always wanted to work in the music industry. Yeah. Originally, you had something in common. Originally, it was you wanted to be a radio producer. Was that I right? I did, yeah, I did. Originally, when I was, at, but that I'm talking about like when I was at school, I wanted to work for the BBC, and that didn't happen. Oh, I didn't pursue it actually in the end. But I just happened to meet someone that worked for Virgin Records, and I was doing work experience actually at a community radio station. And I met this guy, and he was like, "Look, you're not getting paid here. Come and not get paid for me." Because in those days, that's like, <laughs> but in those days, yeah, that yeah. was your entry into the yeah, music it industry. It's different now. But then you literally had to do work experience or be an in turn for a significant amount of time now you can do a degree and you probably have to have that degree to mm. still work for free for a record yes, company yes. for a certain amount of time and so i went and worked for virgin records for about i don't know six months and i just really loved the industry i took to it really well and i'm still not jaded by it a lot of people are but i i just love the music industry that becomes a job then at virgin records a no job so i know at that point i was working in the promotions department so where the, i was going around with the radio pluggers who go and try and get people's records played on the radio and that wasn't what i was interested in i think marketing was definitely something that held more appeal to me so i then went to work for a tiny independent record label called ztt which trevor horn owned and I worked there for about five years. I mean, like for peanuts, I think my starting salary was like seven grand a year or something, you know, 
My parents, God love them, were paying for my train ticket in and out of London for me to be able to do that. And then from there, I just took to it again. I just really loved marketing. I really liked being the point person for the artist or the artist management, because that's what happens when you're in the marketing department. You're normally that pivotal point. And from there, I went to work at Mute Records as a, as a marketing manager um, and worked across artists like Nick Cave and Depeche Mode and Moby. And then from there on, I went to V2, which is where this leg of my career kind of began, really, I suppose. And that marketing angle that you came from, I mean, again, this would have been, so what, tail end of the 90s, I'm guessing? Yeah, I think so. I had to write some dates and I'm really rubbish with dates. Normally I do it by albums. Like, you know, that is album titles. So when people say, when did you start working with Paul? I'm like, oh, Studio 150. You know, that's yeah, kind yeah, of how yeah, I do yeah. it. Well, I guess also um, probably you're not updating your CV like the rest of us pretty often, I right? I don't think well, I've ever. Your LinkedIn and all that. I, no, exactly. I don't you've ever done a you're CV. You're not job hunting, are we? So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm lucky that I haven't had to do a CV for a while. I've just made, I think I joined V2 in about 2003-ish, I think. And that world of marketing, which was your experience then, yeah. As 20 years on, mm-hmm. completely alien world of what yeah. existed there. The skills that you got there would not be the things that you'll be using so much now, I would guess. No, not if I was starting out now, it would be a completely different skill set. But what that time gave me was experience in how the industry as a whole works, but also it led me to the point where I wanted to work with artists in a more direct way. And I think looking back on that time, that there was always a ceiling for me at a record company because I was always a bit too artist friendly. I would take things very personally if I didn't get the budget I wanted to spend on a band. And I don't think that held me in good favor with the bosses, you know. So I think artist management was a pretty natural progression for me to go into. And so we arrive at V2. Yeah. And on your first day, you met Paul. Yeah, I had the craziest first day ever. Looking back on it, it was my very first day there. And the head of marketing said, hey, this is a curveball. You're going to go to Heathrow and pick up Carla Brunei in a car and drive her down to Blackburn where you'll meet Paul Weller because you're going to be looking after Paul here. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is so random. People forget that she was a recording artist. So she's going down to Blackburn to record music. And I did that. And there was bad traffic from Heathrow and Carla was saying, oh, can't you get us there quicker? And I'm like, "Not, not really, but like supermodel, you know, no, sorry. And walked into here. And actually the first thing Paul did was go, hi, nice to meet you. Do you want a cup of tea? And it just put me at ease immediately. Wonderful. And what was your role then? I was the senior marketing manager. Okay. I was always very banned focus. So I looked after Paul and the Stereophonics and a couple of other bands, but I was never really pop or R&B or hip hop. Like like guitar music was always my kind of thing, really. And at that point, so Studio 150, then we have As Is Now on V2 and the live album actually Catch Flame. Yeah. That period of Paul was kind of was the end of that band, if you like. I agree. So yeah. yeah, so Steve yeah. White and Damon Cheddar and things like that. But actually like Flying High, I mean, those albums were hugely popular. Particularly Studio 150. Yeah. Massive sales. Yeah, that. really big sales. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how hard was it to promote an artist like Paul at that time? It wasn't hard to promote him or market him. The only difficulty, and it's still the same thing now, really, is what Paul's willing to do. You know, if Paul was willing to do everything on offer, which he shouldn't be willing to do that, but if he was, then obviously the world's your oyster. Mm. I could put him anywhere and he could do anything. But the one great thing about Paul is that he's always been very discerning. And and even in some situations where I've tried to talk to him about doing something that he doesn't want to do, and I've gone home thinking, oh, he's making a bad 
decision there or whatever. Nine times out of 10, when I look back on that, he was right to have not done those things. So yeah, no, it's not hard to promote Paul. It's getting harder with radio now because radio to, which is where he's kind of his main staple, the way they do the playlist, they're trying to skew a bit younger, etc., etc. It is getting harder, but I'm not sure Paul's overly bothered about that. I think he just wants to make the music he wants to make. Mm. He's never made a record with promotion in mind, ever. I remember hearing an interview with Ed Sheeran. My kids absolutely adore Ed Sheeran and obviously huge chart success, massive streams, downloads, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know what Paul's view is on Ed Sheeran, but I'd hope, I mean, he's a talented guy, obviously. Right? Yeah. But he was talking about how he how he writes songs and he's writing songs for the radio stations. I'm bashing out 15 songs. These are my Radio 1 songs. Here's my radio. I'm yeah. now in the Radio 2 mode and whatever. I mean, Paul's never thought about that in Not terms once. of, yeah, it's all about, for, and, and even for the, for us, the audience, it's really, you know, he's writing for himself and what he wants. And if we go along and we love it, that's great as well. But he's not got that in mind, I guess. No. And if you go along and love it as a fan, he's grateful and he's really chuffed about that. But that again is not his end goal. His end goal really is to make the music that feels right for him at that given time. I think, I don't want to put words in hmm. his mouth, but I think that's what it is. And often... When I've heard a new record, I'll sit there and I'll be listening to it a few times. I mean, I've obviously heard it being made from the distance of where this office is to the studio, but I listen to it with a, okay, great, there's my Radio 2 single. Or sometimes on album, it's like, oh, okay, this is going to be, we have to think, work around it and think of different ways of getting the music out there if it's there's not an obvious radio record on there. When I think back to when I first heard On Sunset, the album, I was delighted because it had the whole spectrum. It had Village, which is a perfect Radio 2 record, and it had Rockets, which is still one of my favourite records of his now, and all of those things. But it's not always like that. But regardless, I just quite like the challenge outside of that because I respect what he's doing, I guess. Mm. There's in the book Magic, which actually is on your desk, yeah. reading every day, obviously. <laughs> Dylan talks about Paul's purple patch mm-hmm. and from 22 dreams, really, to now. And I, yeah, it feels like the purple patch really is the last 45 years, but I get where he's coming from because 22 dreams was him probably experimenting more than ever before, moving certainly out of the comfort zone and creating something like a double album, for goodness sake. But that's the point at which Moon Management comes into play. Yeah. Is that right? Um, I, it was the first album I worked on for him. So I'd left V2 at that point and come here. And um, yeah, that was the first album. So I've worked for Paul from 22 Dreams onwards. And it was great because it was a game-changing record in Paul's career, I think. It was definitely the start of a new era and all of Paul's career, he's been defined by the, the different eras. It was just an absolute pleasure to work on. And actually following that, Wake Up The Nation was the same, you know, and being Mercury nominated and it wasn't what people expected him to do. And I loved that about mm. both of those records. You mentioned this is John's desk. Yeah, um, it is. And obviously around that point, because of John's yeah. ill health, that that's where the, the kind of change comes from. What did you learn from John? Obviously, there was that connection. Was there any handover? Did he pass on the card school to you? Oh my goodness, the cards. No, I got rinsed though. <laughs> <laughs> I did get rinsed, by mainly by Kenny and John together as like a tag team. Oh, um, I didn't actually work with John a huge amount because when I came to work for Paul, John was healthy, but in maybe slightly more bad health, like the health was declining. And the industry at that point was changing so dramatically. Um, It really was. So there was no real handover. And actually the reason I came to work for Paul was mainly because when I was at V2 being his point of contact, a lot of people were using me as a conduit to get to Paul. And I think by that point, Paul was like, okay, you may as well just come and work for me. I think that's literally how the conversation went. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> you know, 
But I did respect John enormously. And I think what I learned from him really is that this is just a big family. And I know that sounds really shit, but it is. And his love for Paul and Paul's love for him, it was just incredible to watch, really. And no matter what happened, I think John always did right by Paul. Let's come across so much on the podcast, that family nature of Black Barn, the, yeah. the, the Paul Weller setup, if you like, and everybody who's in it. You can tell that thing of it, it comes across in such a lovely way. And you've obviously got Anne just up the road yeah, here. Yeah, which is great. And Nikki uh, comes in all the time, which is lovely as well. She's yeah. amazing. And that goes right back to the jam days when they were creating the fan club, which is incredible, really, you think, isn't it? To still have that ethos when an industry has changed so much. This is not business business, no, is it? No, it's not. It's really not. And I think it's a lovely thing. And I think more artists or artists artist management companies or whatever could learn from it. I mean, Bill and I have been like, he's one of my best friends and we've been friends for like 20 years and Kenny's kind of like the father figure a little bit. And, you know, and I often think about Kenny and that if ever I was stuck somewhere in the middle of the night, I'd probably phone him and I know that he would sort me out and go, right, babe, I'm on my way or whatever. You know, it's just kind of, we just look mm. out for each other, all of us. And that's really nice. It's still work though, obviously. Right? Yeah, definitely. So still <laughs> and, and it's not and Paul all... takes that really seriously as well, right? This is... Massively. Yeah. And we don't, you know, we conversations get heated. Don't get me wrong. We, we all love each other, but, you know, often we all have our own opinions about something strategically or business-wise or whatever. And there's conversations that are had when I'm called Claire and not Mooney. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to work here, really? Well, let's talk about it as a business. So you mentioned the people. There are other people that we should mention who are in this setup, in this bubble. Yeah. So we, I mean, we are a really small team. We're very much a cottage industry. But, you know, there's obviously Kenny and Bill looking after the tour management side of things. Charles running the studio and the engineer, me. And then we have Dominic, who's our accountant and business manager, and Peter Button, who's our lawyer. That's really the core. As a boss, what's he like as, as, a, as a fella? Oh, well, this gives me the great opportunity to say nice things about him without saying it to his face, doesn't it? Because he just gets really awkward with compliments and stuff, I think. He's an absolute pleasure to work for. And I say that with as much kind of love and honesty as I can muster because you always know where you stand with him. He's very black and white. If he ever says to me, if I ask him to do something... And he responds with, maybe that's as gray area as it gets. That's where I know it's a no. So a maybe is always a no for me. But he's generous. He's kind. He asks about your families. He remembers if someone's parents have had a fall and and how are they? He's keen to say, I'm always here if you need me. He's proper. He's a proper, lovely person. What's Paul like as a line manager? Are there kind of performance reviews and you're <laughs> you're having appraisals and having to set goals? No, I can't. I can't say to you there's ever been anything like that. There's no health what about and safety your development, Claire. Come on, <laughs> my personal development in my career. No, no, there's never anything like that. But you know, it just kind of evolves. It just evolves as he evolves, and you know, and we take on different things at different times. And obviously, working for someone like Paul isn't just about planning touring or releasing records, which is probably about 50% of the job. But there's so many curveballs that he does, clothing lines, Mm. designing a mini, being in a film, etc. And they're the parts I also really love because they're the parts of the job that make no two days ever the same. And how many of those things are the phone ringing here? 
and you getting the request versus Paul going, like, I really want to do this thing. I've seen Sunspell. I really want to work with them and design something versus offers that are coming in. So you're on the phone and you're, or email and you're having to filter them. It's a bit of both, to be honest with you. Sunspell, as a particular reference, they came, they approached us. Um, and I knew that he would love that because he, he wears Sunspell anyway. So that felt like a brilliant fit. And that was a really lovely experience because Paul's so hands on with clothing. So, you know, he definitely designed 100% of it with the chief designer at Sunspell overseeing it and obviously doing the practical stuff. But, you know, to the point of measurements of collars or how far a cuff should come down on a, on a shirt or whatever. You know, and with Sunspell, we went up to their factory in Long Eaton, and that's a real family affair. And Paul was like meeting all the factory workers and all the seamstresses and everything, and, it, and having his photo taken. And it's those moments that are so lovely, you know, because he's so good with normal people. Mm. You know, he's much more comfortable in that setting than shaking hands with whoever. It's also that kind of authentic nature, right? Because that would have been very easy. Those type of projects you see with other artists where you could just shove your name on it, stick your name on the label. Yeah, never with him. And absolutely you're not involved in any way, shape or form. That's never been the approach, no? No, never. I mean, when we a while back now, but when we did a, a range of Fred Perry, he knew exactly what type of material he wanted to use. And he we had to get someone from their archive to go, because obviously all of these fashion places, they archive everything. And they, he, he had a very specific reference of the archive of the, the type of material that he... I mean, he's that like picky. <laughs> he's that authentic about his clothes. And there are these, he's mentioned there are only three or four passions, music obviously being huge, fashion, the family. There aren't, he's not like, he's not a guy with loads of hobbies and things like that, right? It's like those passion points, he's like, Full on into. No, I think you've just named the hobbies. I mean, you know, and that's why we'll ask certain, certain press people or what have you will ask us for him to do. Could you do a thing about your top 10 films or, you know, those things you see at the back of a magazine where it's here's what, I, you know, the last podcast I listened to or the last scented candle I bought or whatever. Yeah, that's not going to happen in our world. He wouldn't have anything to say about, you know, scented candles or best meal you've ever had out or whatever. Ask him about fashion and the Beatles and mm. he's, he's, he's up and running. <laughs> I heard about this. So obviously at the minute of us recording, we're just uh, actually midway through nearly towards the end of the European yeah. tour. Um, and you've just got back from Italy yourself. Yeah, I came back yesterday from Milan. Um, and you've seen been on a few of the dates, a few of the gigs. I, I went to, this time around, I went to Paris for the opening show. And then I went to Milan because I was filming the show. It was great. The shows are incredible. And the fans are incredible. He hasn't been, he hasn't toured Europe since 2017. And that's Southern Europe I'm talking about. So there was definitely a lot of excitement from the fans and he really feeds off that. It was lovely. It must be really rewarding the fact that this is an artist who is continually putting out new material, is continually looking at creating. I mean, this is not as much as I love Kate Bush. This is not Kate Bush where she's, you know, she's dialed it off for 15 years and you're sitting around as a manager twiddling your thumbs, right? It's like, no. actually, there's always something new, which must be, you know, exciting, challenging as well. So I want to talk about some of these elements, the album creation, then you tour. Is there still that model, I guess, that that's the order of which you do things and which Paul thinks this is the this is the way we do stuff? Um, not so much anymore, to be honest with you. So, so historically, you would always tour to support an album because you would use the tour to promote the album. I don't think that's really a model that that works or is necessary anymore. The only time those things come into play for me is that when I'm strategically planning a tour with Paul and Bill and everyone else, my role here is to always look at the bigger picture. So whereas, you know, some people just accounts or just touring or whatever, just the studio for Charles, I have to look at everything as a whole. So I would be, well, if we've taught all year round, then when are we going to put a record? Because I need him in this country for a month around a record to promote it, to approve stuff, whatever. So from that perspective, 
touring and, and releasing record has to work together, but not so much to co-promote each other anymore. Mm. Paul's hands on with that, obviously. He's not he's not an artist who retreats and just gets given the itinerary and what we're going to no. do. And this, here's your plan for the year, Paul, off you go. No, I mean, we... We know the schedule well enough to be able to sit down. I will sit down to him with a plan, but it's not like a done deal. So I, it will be brushstrokes. So I'll sit down with him and say, okay, let's look at next year. So if we put a record out here, then we'd probably need to do Japan and Australia at this point in the year. Then we can do the UK. And we will kind of look at the year as a kind of like a clock, you know, working mm. around the calendar. And within that, obviously, he needs to be happy and he needs to go, okay, fine. But actually... I don't fancy doing that there. Could we not do the UK in two halves or whatever the situation is? It's always collaborative because he's the boss, you know, but I would probably sit down with him first with the kind of rough idea for him to then work from. And there are often curveballs. So mm. within that, you'll suddenly have a um, other aspects where he's doing a full show of true meanings with an orchestra. Yeah. Or Teenage Cancer Trust or something, which is obviously always in March. You know, there's lots of things there that we try and see if we can work in if we're asked to do things. Does Paul have a, is he the kind of guy that we, he'll have a list and go, these are the things I want to do you know these are the things i haven't done yet let's make these happen mooney uh, no i know that there's a couple of things that i think would be on his bucket list i mean he's said publicly but you know he would love to write a james bond theme tune things like that i know he would really love to do i think he'd like to work more with an orchestra it's really hard to tour with orchestras because obviously the logistics and the cost there's so many of them etc but there's not a lot he doesn't really think like that he's more in the present and if he does want to do something like I want to do my own clothing line, so we will then develop Real Stars Are Rare, which was his clothing line a few years back, that will kind of come quite kind of almost like as an incidental conversation that then grows into something, you know. Let's talk about the catalogue. So obviously these songs, I mean, like this, honestly, folks, there are so many discs in this room of hundreds of thousands, I mean, millions of, of record sales from singles right from the jam, obviously, as you expect in the city, right through to now. It's in, and this incredible back catalogue. You know, how does it work? So obviously Universal Music are involved, but he's been on multiple labels over the years, Polydor now, Polydor back in the day, Parlophone, all that. How does that fit into your world as, as management? And, and who owns this? These, this material what does it say uh, so Universal have the majority of the catalogue other than the Warner years which is Parlophone so they have the Jam Style Council most of the solo stuff our merchandise company is part of Universal um, our publishing company is Universal which is good actually because they're great people and I say that genuinely you know the days are gone in my opinion of it being an us and them situation with a big major record company I know that you know people read these biographies of artists or what have you and it's very much we've been screwed over by the label or whatever that's not my experience it may have happened to those artists it's not our experience maybe because they hold so much respect for Paul we work collaboratively with them we like to work with good and nice people and we like to be good and nice to them you know as well because that's how you get the best out of people right you know so a lot of my day-to-day -day business is with Universal and with the catalogue we have a ca I mean there's a catalogue department at Universal and a guy Johnny Chandler is our is my main point of contact there who's awesome and we Again, it's very collaborative. I do sometimes have to put my foot down a bit when it comes to the jam because they always want, not Johnny per se, but they always want to reissue and reissue and remaster and reissue. And it got to the point where I was like, no more. We can't just keep expecting the fans to buy the same thing 
time and time again, you know, Paul always likes the artwork to be as, as authentic as possible. So celebration box sets, for example, are great. The one we did on the gift was lovely, a lovely piece of work, but you can't do that every five years. Can we, you know, it's now 45 years or it's 50 years or it's 35 years. You're just forcing people to buy the same thing again. So we're very protective of the fans when it comes to that. So at the moment, we're moving on to the Style Council a lot more, being a bit more focused on the Style Council and also making sure that having an eye on things, key albums of your solo career. So 22 Dreams, for example, was impossible to get for a long while. And you see exchanging hands on eBay for hundreds of pounds, which again, isn't fair on the fans. So I have to have a broad sort of view on the catalogue as a whole. Really, you see these stories of um, things like Katy Perry over the past week selling the rights to her records for millions, and um, Paul Simon selling his catalogue to I think it's BMG or Sony and whatever. So what has Paul? Is Paul got ownership of his, his music in that way, or is it actually you're already working with Universal in that format? Really? Well, we are. I mean, that example you give of big artists like Elton John or Rod Stewart or whoever who sell their catalogues for hundreds of millions. I don't think we would ever entertain that because actually, I mean, I'm not party to the details of those deals. Full disclaimer, but. Generally speaking, we wouldn't want to relinquish control. So whilst Universal own the majority of our catalogue, we have approval on how it's used. We wouldn't have going underground used on a on, on something that we didn't want it to be used on, maybe morally, maybe the deal wasn't good enough. And there's many different reasons that would mm. make that cause us to make that decision. So selling the catalogue in those big chunks, you're just giving away your art. So that's how I see it. And that's not something I could ever see Paul doing. One of the other things I love about Paul's work and the studio here is the collaborations. So the, the other yeah. people that come into the mix and, and you end up, you know, we had like Madeline Bell and P.P. Arnold coming down for a, a kind revolution. And, and, you know, Hannah Peel, we were chatting about in the office a little earlier and, and just what an incredible talent oh, she she's is. she's amazing. Stuff. How does that work in terms of the logistics of that? So, you know, getting them here from a business angle, how does that, how does that work? <laughs> um, so sometimes it's Paul just phoning people. And I'll be here working and all of a sudden someone's in there doing a vocal or something. And I'm like, oh, hello. <laughs> um, other times it's a bit more considered in that it will be, okay, we're going to put strings on some tracks in the record. Let's get Hannah down. I'll be in touch with her and her manager. Or if Paul's co-written something with someone or co-produced a track with someone, there's a, like contractual agreements that have to be made. So I'll be involved at that point. In terms of logistics, I mean, it's just straightforward. Like, here's our address. Do you want me to get your car? You know, it's yeah, very yeah. sort of basic. But there's no like so- rate card for a certain levels of artists in, in the same way as they might be in, like, I don't know, acting world of equity type thing, isn't no, there? No, like, no, no. So you're having to play the negotiation and all that kind of stuff, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, we have... I've been stung before. I won't name names, but we've definitely been stung before where people have come down and done something and then their people subsequently have gone, oh no, we don't need to use that now. You know, and it's like, okay, this is why we need contracts in advance of yeah. studio sessions. But when, when, you know, when Paul's in the creative process, that's not always possible to plan stuff ages in advance. Yeah, sometimes it is just, oh, let's just see if they're around and they might come down. But generally speaking, it's always worked brilliantly. Sat in this office hearing it all going on. I mean, that must be such a buzz of like, he's continuously creating new material. Yeah. It's not resting on his laurels. I remember reading, I think it was Mojo 2021, where Fat Pop had just been released and there was a lovely article and he was talking about it, obviously. He mentioned the fact that the next project was going to be a triple album, he said at the time, right? And then you were quoted as like going, oh, for goodness sake, like, let me have a rest or something along those lines. Because he's, cont- I mean, it's so prolific. Yeah, but that was on the that was on the back of COVID. So, you know, you have COVID and I'm at, I'm at home, like everyone 
everyone is. And I'm homeschooling my children. Whilst releasing, I think we did two albums in that year and we did Midsummer Music, which was the streamed gig here. That was a lot in one year when you're homeschooling kids and you're worried about your parents. And, you know, that's a lot to do. So I think it was a joke comment. It was definitely <laughs> tongue in cheek, but it, but it was sort of like joking, not joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, please, no more. Um, but just give me like six months. But yeah, that was, I did read that and just think, oh, okay. Don't know if I should have said that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was, because it gave you that impression, like I say, of an artist that's, like, it has, like, as a fan, it, we've been really treated, you know, from true meanings to the other aspects, you know, like six months later, these brilliant releases coming out and then suddenly, yeah, on the sunset and then boom. And I know because of COVID, we then get fat pop really quickly off the back of it. It's like, yeah. actually, as a fan, you're just going, oh my God, this is, this is ridiculous. The amount of material, new material. And it's not like, it's not just churning it out. The quality is right up there. I mean, on sunsets, a lot of the fans say, you know, it's one of his best albums yeah, ever. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, releasing music during COVID was challenging as well because you couldn't do the things that you would normally do to let fans know a record's out there. You know, so all of the radio stuff was on the phone. That's never easy. There's always a bit of, okay, make sure your phone's switched on, that, make sure the kids are somewhere quiet, (laughs) you know. Yeah. So we had to be different challenges. It was different. It was different during COVID. But then thankfully that period has gone and we're back to kind of being able to be in the same room. Isn't it interesting though that, that his reaction to that was, okay, well, let's go again. Let's make another album. Let's, let's, let's figure out the logistics of that, of people being in different remote places, you know, Steve Craddock's down in Devon, they're sharing yeah. things on email and stuff. Cause yeah, you know, a lot of people would just be going, okay, well, I'm just going to chill for a bit and let's see what happens. But that wasn't his mentality. No, no. And also because Paul obviously owns Black Barn, he had the luxury that a lot of artists don't, where he could still come here because it's his place and he would be on his own. So he was still able to make the music he wanted to make. There aren't many artists who have this kind of setup now. No. What we're talking about, both from the kind of cottage industry business angle that you talked about, but also their own studio. That's that's quite a luxury, isn't it? A complete luxury and something that I think Paul's incredibly grateful for. He never takes that for granted. I mean, he often says that in press interviews. He loves being able to come down here and just escape and put his head into the music. And I guess also that work rate, that productivity, it's also about actually I've got people who are relying on me as well, whether it's band members, the setup of Paul Weller HQ and that. <laughs> as well right yeah and he feels that you know if we have a couple of quiet years of touring which doesn't often happen but it has happened before he's very aware of the loss of income for the people around him very aware of it Mm. he's very working class that ethos has never changed and and there's one thing I wanted to touch on which I won't go into loads of details there was the court case with the Daily Mail um, that was fun <laughs> a week in court, <laughs> yeah. And obviously, I've done re- you know doing research for the podcast. There were quotes and stuff that came up, and the really interesting thing that came out. One of the things, well, lots of interesting things. One of the things that came out was just how private he is. Yeah, this is not a guy who considers that he works in showbiz. No, he's the least showbiz person ever. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was. And that's one thing. The court case was just a very peculiar experience, you know, because we were sitting there and I had to testify as well as being part of Paul's team and Paul and Hannah, you know, etc. He was right. And Hannah was right. It was largely led by Hannah. And she was 100% right. If, you know, the press shouldn't photograph your children without your permission. In this day and age, I just, I think they were completely right. Mm. And thankfully we won the case. Yeah. But a lot of the argument of the Daily Mail or Associated Press was the fact that it's fair game. It's kind of, you know, Paul's lives the celebrity lifestyle. And it's like, actually, you were talking about the fact that, um, you know, he gets offers from things like Hello and Celeb Magazines and they just get turned down straight away, right? That's not his world. I mean, the unwritten rule, and I say unwritten deliberately because there's nothing formalized about this, but the unwritten rule is that if you caught the press with your children on a red carpet, 
it, going to premieres, etc. You're kind of fair game because you're pretty much choosing to do that. You're saying, okay, I'm fine with my children being in the press. Paul doesn't do that, rarely. I mean, maybe he has done a couple of times with his older children, with Nat and Leah, when it's been something fashion or something appropriate. Mm. Certainly not with the younger ones. They shouldn't have been fair game. And he doesn't do all of those celebrity things. Far from it. Far from it. <laughs> you know. So yeah, he was him and Hannah were both completely right to stand up for themselves with yeah. that. And they were trying it was almost like they were trying to position him as like this making out that Paul wanted this image as like a super dad type thing. And when I was in the stand, I was so nervous I spoke so quickly apparently. But um, when I was in the stand, you know, trying to make the point to them that if he was that kind of artist, you wouldn't have had to search for months and months to try and find images of his children because they would come up with some examples. Well, here's a picture of your son or your daughter. But they'd obviously had to really, really, really look for it. And, you know, nine times out of 10, those images have been put up by mistake and then quickly taken down, whatever. You know, he doesn't do that because if we were using that to our advantage promotionally, you wouldn't have to search hard for them. They would be everywhere. Like, I don't know, Peter Andre's children or whoever, you know, they kind of lost their credibility a bit with that part of their case, I think. Yeah. And it's also that kind of, you know, there are a couple of occasions, not many, but you see the other side of the press where actually, obviously you need, I mean, not necessarily the Daily Mail, but you, you need relationships with these people to get them to promote things at times as well, right? We're very particular about the press. Probably doesn't make Polly's job, our press agent's job any easier. There's certain outlets we just won't do. We just won't do it. And Paul, as he's got older and long and had a longer career in the industry, you know, he just feels like sometimes he's saying the same thing. And so there's always a conversation to be had about, okay, here's what we think you should do. What do you reckon? And obviously the music press is all great. I like him to do the broadsheets at some point because I like to try and reach that wider audience. But even if he does agree to do something we're very particular about who interviews him. We don't just want to talk about him having eight kids, recovering alcoholic all the time because we want to try to make it about the record. You know, so there's a fine line and we do have an element of control over that, which a lot of people don't. So that's really nice. And even the music press, there are key individuals that do great interviews. I mean, many of them have been on the podcast, people like Pete Pathides and yeah. Pat Gilbert and you know, Love Tom, those guys. Tom Doyle, who's done the recent Mojo Wildwood bit. The relationships that he has and that chemistry, I guess, and you know, and, and I'm asking obviously for vested reasons as well. But, but there are people that he connects with and that interview him and discuss things with him in a really good way that he likes. Yeah, and from experience, I know who those people are. You know who the people are that are going to get the most out of him because Paul can sometimes be a man of few words, you know, and that's awkward for some journalists. But if you have the right journalist and the right like people that he's kind of friends with, or when we do anything on camera where he really becomes quite shy, he's not comfortable on camera, then we bring in a John Wilson or a Dylan Jones or someone that he's just very happy just to sit there and it's way more conversational than it is question and answer. So so that's just the experience of working with him o- over the years. And there's also people that you would know never to put him in a room with because you just would not get anything out of him mm. and it would make him look bad. You know, so at the end of the day, when it comes to the press or any interviews, my role is to I'm quite protective of him. He probably wouldn't agree with that, but I feel quite protective of him. And obviously there are things that then go out in the press that you're kind of like, (laughs) I can think of a few. (laughs) And with those situations, we won't get into specifics, but with those situations, Paul's entitled to say what he wants to say. You know, he's always brutally honest. He's very black and white about things. He doesn't ever play that media game and I love him for it. What annoys me about those situations is the journalist that's printed it. Because often those conversations are off the record 
when the interviews stopped and they're just having a coffee and a cigarette and some banter. But the journalist has then chosen to print that like it was part of the formal interview. You know, so whilst Paul has the right to have his opinions about things, it's also should be contained within the context of the conversation he's having. So at that point, that's where whoever leaves the trust list from me. Okay. Sound advice. So don't don't leave the thing recording in my pocket. If the interview <laughs> report well it happens, you know, it's it's not the it's not the banter it's not the banter in the kitchen. You can do it, just don't, you know, print it or put yeah, it on yeah. the pocket. Oh, well. um, it doesn't it doesn't we're making it out like it happens all the time. It really doesn't, you know, he it really doesn't. You know, we're talking about a handful of times over 20 years of me working yeah. with him. But also those things now live on forever, right? So it's, so it's back in the day, it was it was in the week's NME and then that's almost like fish and chip paper. Now it's on the, the those interviews, those conversations are like live on the internet. Well, it's global as well, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm just rolling my eyes. <laughs> there was a bit of a time where maybe the perception of Paul was, you know, here's this moody, angry young man, I suppose. But actually what you hear through the podcast and through the various conversations we had is this is a guy with a really great sense of humour. Yeah, he's the opposite of his public perception, I would say. I get why people think that he's grumpy. He has a kind of, in photos, he has quite a grumpy face on him. He doesn't like to smile in photos. When he does, rarely, I get there's some beautiful shots of him, but it's not his, his natural. His natural things just look like quite moodily at the camera. I, so from a photographic point of view, he does look a bit grumpy. Going back to what we were saying about if he's, depending on who's interviewing him or is working with someone that gets the best out of him. I think he's probably done some interviews in the past where he's been quite sort of, yes, no, don't care. But he's the opposite of all of that. He's very positive about life. He's a little bit more spiritual than people would think of. He loves nature. I've always been a bit bemused by the grumpy kind of reputation that he has. I mean, I've seen that side of him a couple of times and I get, I think other artists have probably seen that side of him a couple of times, but we're probably going way back to mm. maybe like 30 years ago during the height of the drinking days or whatever. These days, I don't think he's, I've never seen that. He's never ever once been nasty to me. And the fact that you can have disagreements and debates is healthy. This isn't somebody who is just telling you to do things and you go off and do all those tasks. No, he's very respectful. He would listen. Even if the end result is still a no, he would sit down and hear me out as to what why I think he should do something strategically or why Polydor might want him to do something or Parlophone might want him to do something or whoever. He would sit there and listen and, and take it on board Sometimes it's like, I'll come back to you and it, and it might swing in my favour. Other times it's like, yeah, I hear you, but it's, it's still a no. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Let me ask you about being a working mum, because you mentioned yeah. that earlier as well. And you said, um, you actually, I got this quote, and I can't remember where from, but you said, personally, always the most important thing I work on is my children, who are the best humans I know. They are. They are the best humans I know. But I mean, who sh- who wouldn't say that about their own kids? What right? do they think about what you do, though? For their perspective, this is a really exciting world, isn't it? It is. They've had some really cool moments that, are, I mean, my kids are 12 and 9. They love being on a tour bus. They've loved hanging out with Paul's kids before in the past. Oscar, my son, he has had like a sort of uber show and tell when he was in year six at school and I took a Brit award in for him for his show and tell and all of his teachers were taking pictures of it you know that kind of thing and very recently we all went to Wembley Stadium when we supported Blur you know and it was a school night and I was thinking oh you know they're going to be really tired and they've got school the next day but how often are you going to play Wembley Stadium things like that that they've been able to experience but equally it's just their normal as well as they get older they're understanding more what it is that mum does part of the research i've stalked your social media clearly mm-hmm. you know instagram there was a photo this is 2013 if you remember this was a dax photo shoot oh with paul with my daughter yeah so she was what <laughs> three weeks old yeah looking back on that i was talking to leah weller about this recently actually when i saw her looking back on that, i don't know what i was thinking <laughs> i think i was still delirious from like childbirth to take isla my daughter to Brighton to do a photo shoot. You know. This was like a fashion shoot. So it was this wasn't Dax. About the it was, music. High, it was yeah. quite high end. He yeah. was modelling for Dax, as was Leah. And yeah, Paul just loves it. He loves babies. He loves children. He's brilliant with them. And he was like cuddling her. The Dax team were just very worried all of a sudden that she was going to throw up on his suit because obviously it had been made to measure and all of that. And Paul didn't give a damn about that. But yeah, looking back on that, I'm just thinking, oh, I should probably have had a bit more time off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Let's talk about what's coming. Yeah. We've had on Sunset, we've had Fat Pop, and Paul then has got to tour those those records. And so that's almost kind of like that traditional model, if you like, yeah. in the sense of the release, the touring, and so on, right? But Paul is never switched off in terms of recording. There's always talk of new material. And I've seen some things stuck on the wall around here, folks. I can't share them with you, but this is massively exciting for 2024. 2024 is going to be a really cool year. There's a lot planned, a lot planned, that's been planned probably for the last 18 months, maybe, because that's how far in advance, really, you do have to book tours or think about a record or doing a record deal. So yeah, it's going to be a really exciting year. I mean, things that I can talk about that will be out there by the time this podcast airs, three Sydney Opera House shows. <laughs> can you give me dates on that? I need to have a conversation. With February, my <laughs> February 9th, 10th and 12th. Funnily enough, when I was caught in the traffic coming here today on the M25, I luckily was near a service station. So I pulled in thinking this traffic is going nowhere fast and I can get some work done. So I was sitting there just thinking, my life is just weird, isn't it? Like I take my sort of to gymnastics this morning and then coming to Black Barn to work and to see you get caught in traffic and whilst I'm caught in traffic I'm kind of dealing with the artwork and announcements announcement for three Sydney Opera House shows it's just very surreal sometimes all I'm thinking at the minute is that's I think that's half term so <laughs> actually I, th- I think you're right actually I think it yeah, is just, half term it's a long way to go for three shows so you might need to make a trip of it yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so Sydney Opera House and Japan we're going to tour Japan Japan is such a big deal I mean it's been quite a while since he's been there but that, that apps the audience there the fans there absolutely love him right they love him and you'll notice with most fans you, know, you, you tend to always do Japan and Australia together because you're the right side of the planet and then the other big thing thing for 24 I think we haven't been told definitely it's the film 
Blitz. Ah, so I was going to ask you about this. So obviously there's the whole thing around promoting the music, but then these other opportunities come in that we're talking about, and the Steve McQueen offer to act in a film. I know. I know, and that's, I, don't, I can't. It's, it's not my world. Film We've is all not seen my Jerusalem. World. That's why. I, <laughs> I think I did mention that when I was having the initial call with the casting agent. Like you do, and I think Paul, first thing Paul said was, "But I can't act," you know. But he is amazing in it. I have to say, really amazing in it. They haven't got a release date yet. We haven't seen anything yet. But Paul was incredible, and it was a very step out of your comfort zone situation you know you're at big film studios at Leavesden it was like a proper Hollywood like production and to work with Steve McQueen Mm. I mean incredible just incredible and we've seen a couple of little photos yeah which I don't know if were planned or press the pap pap ones yeah and Paul had a cat I think he was holding right (laughs) yeah I was there Um, on that day and this is um and this is a blitz obviously wartime movie that's all we really know as as an audience but did it take much persuading or I guess you're not persuading but you're you're giving me the offer but did it take much consideration from Paul? Things like that always take a lot of consideration from Paul because it's not something he's comfortable doing. He's so lovely. It was more a case of, will I be good enough for them than anything? That's all he was really worried about was, can I pull it off? I think that were his first words to me, can I pull it off? You know, but Steve McQueen being who he is and the team around him were fantastic with Paul. And, you know, he had a lot of support and I think it's going to be Pleasantly surprising for a lot of people who like to pigeonhole musicians or actors, like not stepping out of their boxes. I think it's going to be great. And he's got lines. Oh yeah, he's a supporting role. Amazing. This yeah, but the best, the best thing was that they cut his hair. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he loved that. <laughs> he did. He did actually. He. I thought it looked great. So the hair got cut, which was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh Let's talk about gigs. Live music is such an important part of Paul's career. You know, we've all been to so many of these amazing gigs. Getting out there and seeing the fans or playing to these this music to the fans is still a key part. You know, he's not um, like Paul Simon's recently re- retired from live music. He's just doing albums. That's never in Paul's mind to kill this off. This live, no, this live never performance. Never once, never once had a conversation with him about that. I think he would only ever stop performing live if he wasn't able to perform live. I think that's my opinion. As we all get older. The traveling, I think, takes it out of him. Not so much in this country, but when we tour America or Southern Europe, like he is at the moment, there's a lot of traveling logistics, um, you know, late nights and getting up early the next morning, which sounds, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people listening that might be like, oh, yeah, boo hoo. But actually, like, it just drain you, hmm. like, you know, and they all, you know, the Paul and the band start to get run down and all of that. But touring for Paul, I mean, it's just in his blood, isn't it? And it's, yeah, and they start getting colds and like yeah. a bit under the weather and all yeah, that. Yeah, right? exactly. You mentioned the fact that obviously you've met up with, you've, you've, you know, you've seen them on the tour bus and all that. So we've got, I'm trying to do the quickly of the mass. Well, we've got five guys on the road together in the band now. Is that right? Seven, including Paul. Okay. Yeah. There's seven guys on the tour bus. I mean, you've seen that world. Well, what? there's actually more because you, if Paul's on the tour bus, Bill's also on the tour bus. Okay. And there's always Mark Carr, a lovely Mark Carr. I should have mentioned him earlier, Paul Security. So he'd be on the tour bus as well. And what's the what's the vibe there? What are they what are they talking about? What are they doing on the tour bus? It's do you know, I love it. It's so much fun. And it's maybe so much fun to me because I don't do it a lot and I don't sleep on the tour bus. But it's so much fun because, you know, it's it's a double decker. It's got a lounge and a kitchen and a bathroom downstairs, another lounge up top with like computer consoles and they watch films and there's always loud music and they're just such good friends, all of them, you know, and myself included. When I'm with them, I love spending time with all of the band. It's fun. 
It's fun. And they, you know, most of their conversations about music or the gig they've just done or things they might want to change for the next one. Or sometimes it's just about how's your kids and, you know, so-and-so's fallen over and grazed their knee. I mean, it's just, we're all parents and it's, you know, it's lovely. And I imagine that's changed a bit or quite a bit since the early days when you were involved from the boozy affairs, right? Paul not drinking is definitely a big change yeah, yeah so that's, that's so there's less chaos involved in life on the road for you for you i guess when they're out there yeah it's definitely easier although probably much easier because i you know bearing in mind I'm not tour manager so it's probably a lot easier for for bill and kenny paul when he stopped drinking it was just he just seemed happier yeah he needed to stop drinking and he was just a, a happier person post alcohol so i think there's a lot to be respected with that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you would kind of be in other jobs, other roles, other businesses, you would kind of feel that that's a, like a, a conversation a manager has to have. That's not a thing that you'd approach in that way, right? No. I mean, you know, I love him. He's a friend of mine. And if ever I was worried about Paul, I would definitely sit down and go, Are you okay? It doesn't happen very often. But no, not in a kind of, it's not a traditional sort of artist management relationship where with some young pop act or whatever, they're controlled by a management team or pulled in different directions by different managers. It, it's just not like that. Everything is collaborative. So there would never be a situation where I would say, hey, you need to do this or you shouldn't do that. Never. Like, I just wouldn't. It wouldn't work, yeah. <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> the conversation would not work. <laughs> At the forefront of your mind when you're talking about albums and tours, more than any artist I can really think of, the fans are always at the centre of those decisions, aren't they? The fans are definitely at the heart of everything, Paul in particular, but we are very protective of them as well. Going back to what I was saying about not wanting to keep rinse in the catalogue, same old thing, time and time again, which I don't think we do, but we could do if we'd have been led down that path. The fans are so important to us. We are very mindful when it comes to planning touring, not only about where we tour, especially specifically with the UK. With the UK, it would be very easy for us just to do London, Birmingham, Glasgow, Dublin. It would be very easy for us to do that. We try and do as much tour as possible so as many people can see without having to travel for three hours. We are particular about ticket pricing. We try our best to keep ticket prices as low as possible. It's not always possible. If we are using an orchestra, nine times out of 10, we have to raise the ticket price to cover the cost because they're expensive and those sort of shows Paul's probably not making a huge amount of money from because even within those realms we've still tried to keep the ticket prices as low as possible and we are very mindful of the fact that going to see a gig is not a cheap exercise anymore not only because of the ticket prices but because of the travel possibly a hotel possibly a babysitter possibly a nice meal out because you want to make a night of it or go for drinks with your friends or what have you we're thoughtful about that we talk about it a lot. We talk to our promoters, global promoters about it a lot, you know, who might come to me and say, hey, we should put this, this should be like a 120 quid ticket. And I'm like, nope, it's not going to be a 120 quid ticket. What can we do to make it work financially for Paul, but also as reasonable for the fans? So sometimes on social media, I see we get stick for it. The haters like to hate. A lot of fans probably wouldn't understand what goes on behind the scenes that some things are out of our control, but we're very mindful of all of that. I jokingly talked earlier on about Paul as a line manager and the the appraisals and those kind of things you have in business these days, right? And we're setting smart goals and all that kind of thing. Um, but actually, if you break it down, if you were setting up a business these days, you would talk about the core values of a company. And those core values come from, when you're talking about the fans come from John, don't they? They come from that. You know, we're talking about 77 onwards right 100%. through to now, right? And Kenny to a certain degree as well, 100%. And Paul, because you know, where John used to let fans come in and watch sound checks 
obviously predates me, but Kenny would then enable that to happen. Paul wouldn't mind sound checking in front of fans. The fans have always been at the heart of everything totally the other thing i want to say about touring is that sometimes we're a bit damned if we do and damned if we don't in this country particularly this country so if we do a tour where we're playing the 100 club which is 500 ish capacity maybe a bit more and the fans are going mad they love it they love it it's paul they can see the whites of his eyes or whatever there's inevitably the backlash because only 500 or so people can get the tickets if we play the o2 there's the backlash of the fans who feel oh it's an arena it's sterile whatever so i think over the years we found that balance really nicely of where paul doesn't massively enjoy playing arenas anyway playing your kind of big theaters you know your hammersmiths 5000 capacity your albert halls 5000 capacity i think bridges that balance and the smaller venues that we do is normally for a specific reason it might be a warm up show or it might be for charity or a brand we did a converse thing once at the 100 club i think i was there yeah were you yeah yeah oh interesting so yeah there's normally a reason behind those those small shows but i do sometimes have to like take a moment when i'm reading on social media he's forgotten about us hardcore fans it's like well what do you want Mm, (laughs) what can we what can we give you to make you know to make you guys feel that we're looking after you we've tried all the different ways yeah but also the industry like has changed so much these decisions are not being made for financial decisions because some of the times you're just breaking even on the gig barely that you're not making millions of out of these tours but you could go down the dynamic ticketing route that so many artists have done now or the promoters are pushing onto the artists whereby the price of the ticket goes up because there's demand for the gigs, right? You could go down that, but actually that's a majority of the times that's a blanket. Well, no, actually, because the fans need to be at the heart of this. Yeah. And we try, again, it's not always possible, but where we have control, we try and avoid tier ticketing. So, you know, if you pay £300, you can be in the front rows. If you pay 35 quid, you're up in the gods and can't see anything. We don't do that. We like as much as we can for everyone to have the same opportunity to be where they want to be in the arena or in the theatre or in the club to see regardless of how much money they earn that's really important to us a way that we can try and protect our hardcore fans we will give them a 24-hour exclusive period to be able to be get in there first if they you know some fans just want to be seated they don't want to be in the heart of it that's fine so we work within the limits that are available to us to look after our fans as much as possible mm. and i imagine at times that rails against the promoter or even the record label to a certain extent sometimes where these decisions are not necessarily the decisions they would make if they owned or controlled inside the that's house. true but you know what with promoters with a record company we wouldn't be working with them if that's what they were pushing us to do so we choose very carefully who our promoters are, which label we're going to. We understand the culture and ethos behind those people. We look at the teams that work there. There'll never be a situation where we would be with an an outside organisation that we're going to try and do that because we just won't work with them. And we have the luxury of being able to make those calls. A lot of artists don't. There are some lovely things, lovely moments that we've had. I mentioned, I was talking about live performance and what I wanted to get to, the uh, the, um, Sir Peter Blake yeah very recently that was a lot of work but my goodness what a result that was it was beautiful wasn't it again a suggestion from paul i guess and suddenly it's like the team have to make this work yeah that's a really good example of that happening actually so paul said hey it's peter blake's 90th let's do a show for him so at that point he then writes handwritten notes of who he thinks should be on it and at that point we're leaping into action i'm speaking i'm like okay we are we doing this from this office curating it and booking the bands and everything he's like yeah so we're getting 
on the phone to our promoter, find out what venues are available at that time of year, which is never easy when you're looking for a festival hall or an Albert Hall or somewhere like that. We actually wanted him or I wanted him to do it at the Albert Hall. It would have made a lot more sense because it's bigger. He just was adamant that it needed to be the festival hall. And I think it worked really well. It felt intimate, um, less pressure maybe. I don't know. The fact that Peter Blake came was incredible. And I think it was just an awesome night. It was it was yeah, it was incredibly important. I love the fact that these all requests are coming from Paul's head and he's like and then you're all working together to make these things happen. Yeah, I mean luckily the kind of artists that Paul's gonna invite onto a show like that, we know them anyway. I know their managers I know Noel's people really well. I know the Madness Boys people really well because they've been in our sort of peripheral circle for so long. So it's not like Googling and trying to find out how to reach different people, but it is coordinating diaries. It is looking at budgets. It is, you know, it's the boring side of of it. But thankfully, there's a lot of respect for Paul and particularly for Peter Blake that everyone, some people, some artists even cancel plans to be able to do it. And there are also some artists that were very offended they weren't invited on. But, you know, you can only do so much with changeovers and the, how a show would run. You can only have so many artists having so many minutes on stage. Otherwise, it just won't work when there's a curfew. Otherwise, yeah. we could have gone all night. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. know? <laughs> it could have been a week-long um, yeah, festival. Just, yeah, it could have been. Then on the night, obviously, you're watching this thing and just you must be so proud yeah. of the thing that everybody's pulled together. And and Paul, obviously, but the whole lineup was... Incredible. Yeah, completely proud. That normally happens when the show's finished because at that point, we're still sort of running around backstage and and he's still in very much work mode it's normally when i'm on the train home or in a taxi home or something that i think oh yeah that was that was special i'm really glad i was part of that yeah there are other characters we mentioned you mentioned charles um stan kyber's been a big part of the team for a while now the producer on lots of paul's record comes here to black barn and you've been working really closely with him on immersive music as well yeah for the last two years actually it'll be two years in november yeah stan and i've known each other for about 15 years through paul through when stan started working here as a producer and mixer mix engineer too Uh, he's incredibly talented and he left stereo mix work alone and moved into atmos spatial immersive whatever you want to call it it's all the same thing And a while back, I saw him at the place he was working and and he wasn't, it wasn't working out for him. I was like, you should just surely set up your own company and do it under your own steam, which he must have already been thinking about. And he was like, well, yeah. And I'm like, shall I just come and help you do that? And he was like, yeah. Okay. And that's literally how that happened. And um, and he's been Atmos Mixing for globally now, a big American artist, country artist, classical, like philharmonic orchestras, mainstream pop, electronic, I mean, right across the spectrum. Um, he has a recording studio at, at uh, well, a mix studio at Tile Yard in, near King's Cross. And it's worked brilliantly for him and I'm so happy for him. And I do a lot of the, just the record company liaison and the management and that side of things. But it's kind of the future and some people won't want to hear that, but it just is the future of how we're all going to listen to music. It sounds incredible when you hear a decent Atmos mix. And it can be done really badly, but I think it know, can Stan be done really is, badly. seems to be like an absolute he's, master. Yeah. And he's kind of the A-list of Atmos mixers. And so the company's called Music Immersive? Yeah. So 2024, we think a new Paul Weller album as well then? Um, I think you could assume that there's a new album coming. Okay. Do we think that would enter the world? of Is, is music immersive? Is, is that, that kind of Atmos thing in Paul's head as well? I imagine there's some healthy debates between the two of them about it. Paul is the sort of artist, and he's not alone, that he's sceptical about it because historically there's always been new formats of listening to music. The mini disc always gets sort of mentioned. That never quite works. Well, right? Studio 150, we had a surround sound 5.1. Yeah, exactly. I think, 5.1's yeah. a great example, you know, and it, 
so he's skeptical about it. Whereas, you know, your, your 21 year old electronic artist creating music in the bedroom is fully invested in Atmos. So I think what we'll do is we're going to, you know, Stan's mixed one of Paul's tracks. He mixed Mirable, I think. And we're going to have, hopefully get Paul down to hear it. And I think when he hears it, he'll understand it. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. And that's fine too. If he does love it, which I think he will, then it's up to him if he wants a new album done that way. But, you know, it's becoming more of a marketing thing, to be perfectly honest with you. It's not only listen to music in a new way and it sounds incredible. You know, if you want, from my perspective as management, if you want a homepage on Apple Music or whatever, you kind of have to do that. Now, Paul would normally, that would make him shy away from doing it. And that's conversations we haven't even had yet because since the last album, it's not really been a thing. But we probably will have to have that conversation. Polydor will definitely be asking me about it. The model of the production, the delivery of an album to get to the record label, to get to us, the listeners, is, I mean, it's a world away from where we were in 1977, where In the City comes out six months later, Paul's rattling off Modern World and it's out in the shops already, right? That's not not how it works now. No, no, it's not. Um, the, the lead times to make a record from, from the moment Paul gets steps foot into Black Barn to start recording. I mean, obviously, it depends on how long the creative process has taken him. But on average, we're probably working 18 months in advance. So from when he delivers the record, when he's finished the record, when he's happy and we've mastered it, we have to allow at least at least six months to make vinyl, at least. We have to think about that. So if I'm sitting here now planning what we're doing for next year... I'm already aware of those lead times before I can do anything. Mm. Yeah. That shapes the whole year because it shapes the touring we do around it in terms of his availability to me or the label. So yeah, it's a lengthy process. It doesn't always, if we were doing something just digitally, he could record something saying and we could put it up tomorrow. But obviously vinyl is very, very important to Paul and to his fans and to me. And we can't take that out of the equation. Yeah. And also there's that thing of, um, you get with a sense with an artist like Paul where he's delivered the product, if you like. Um, it takes that long to get it out into the world. He's already on to the next thing, isn't he? Often. <laughs> <laughs> so before he's even promoting the thing, he's mentally in another space onto the next album. It's always really good with Paul as a rule that if he's finishing album is to try and get out as quickly as we can within those time restraints because before he gets not bored of it musically but before he wants to be onto that next thing and by the time it comes to the album release he's sort of already left that behind a bit and he wants to talk about the new thing which is always the most exciting thing to him so there wouldn't really be a situation from me where he's delivered a record and then we're going to sit on it for 18 months you know, the 18 month cycle be from when he starts recording it, not from when it's finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I yeah, just. You're not like re- waiting for a release gap to, you know, to, no. for a marketing angle to find the best spot where you can hit the top of the charts. In no, and two traditionally that was that. always Father's Day. Every record company wanted us to release on Father's Day weekend, mid June, big spike, biggest spike, bigger than Christmas really? in terms of retail for us, right? Uh, yeah, those days are gone. We don't pay any attention to that now. And actually, to be fair, neither do the label as much either. So yeah, it's a, it is a fascinating process. But I always, with that in mind, with him moving on to the next thing, the other thing that I always do is that the minute he's finished a record, I try and get all of the pre-interviews done as quickly as possible. So we we might record some content for our social media. We might record a track by track description because the international markets need that and there's a lot of value in that there. Or we might try and do what's called an EPK, which is an electronic press kit that we can use and circulate here. I try and do that. In fact, I'll probably try and do it pretty soon if there's a record coming out soon. I'll try and do that as quickly as possible while he's still really, really on, on fire and on, on in the zone of the record he's just made. Right. And then if he's moved on to something else or whatever, I've I've got it in the bag. Yeah. 
It's been such a delight spending time in your company, hearing these stories and um, looking back on the past, what, 20 years, roughly, right? Yeah, it'll be in 20 years next year, right? Yeah. Goodness me. Wow, blimey. <laughs> Jeez, I'm so old. <laughs> we both realised. <laughs> oh, God. So oh, my God. <laughs> are there really key moments that stand out for you as part of this whole setup? Yeah, there are, actually. Having the privilege of listening to Paul record or rehearse never gets old. Going into Abbey Road with him never gets old. With Working with orchestras, can you imagine what a 28-piece orchestra in Abbey Road Studio 2 sounds like? They're definitely pinch me moments. Glastonbury, big one. We nearly didn't make it to Glastonbury the last time, but we got there I'm about half an hour. I'm trying to think which year. Hour. What year? This was 2017 maybe? Yeah, it was yeah. 2017. Right. And um, yeah, Paul just... I mean, he laughs about it now, but he just dawdled getting on the tour bus, everything. And it got to the point where it was like half an hour away from our stage time. And I'm just, me and Bill are just going, um, I don't know if we're going to make it, but thankfully we did. And obviously more recently, the film, being part of that and, and you know, working on the contracts of that and dealing with McQueen, Steve McQueen's office and, but, and supporting Blair at Wembley. I mean, there's lots of pinch me moments with Paul because equally I've been privileged to see him in tiny venues or watching a video shoot or something like that. I mean, the job that I do is so varied. I see him in so many different guises and I, and I love it all. Coming into Black Barn and, and the development of a song, you'll hear like, a, you know, through the, through these wall, the door, the door usually is open and you'll be hearing the thing and then you'll hear that development of that song over weeks and months sometimes of where it ends up. Like the track, like yeah. Mirrorball, for instance, that's not where it started out, you know. No, exactly. And, you know, you'll hear something in its rawest form and then it just the layers get added. And sometimes if I'm not here for a week, I might be at Polydor in, in London and, you know, not necessarily here at the desk for a week and I'll come back down and BVs have been put on something or or, or strings have been added, or, you know, and then all of a sudden the track sounds completely different. But I've sort of familiarised it with, like, just from hearing the initial drum beat or whatever it is where a pool starts with it. It's a real privilege. Mm. Let's talk about the end goal of this podcast. Okay, so 20, December twenty twenty. You want Paul? <laughs> December. The reason we're here. No, December twenty twenty. This thing suddenly pops up on you know Spotify, Apple, and that. Where did you hear about it first? <laughs> Can I ask? <laughs> I can't. Or you'd be like, what the fuck is this thing? A little bit. If I'm being honest, a little bit. I think maybe I heard about it first from you emailing me, possibly. <laughs> and initially you think, oh, okay, interesting. You know, let's see how these things develop. And we're ne there's never a situation where Paul, I'm, I'm just going to talk to Paul about something when, when a, a new podcast has just emerged. You know, it has to sort of be a bit tried and tested from my perspective. But would there ever be a scenario where you see something like that and you go, we need to kill this thing off? All the time, there are certain things that happen or I say, and I'm just like, no, that's a no. And it might be types of promotional requests for him. It might be, you know, the amount of people and that ask if he'll play at their weddings or birthday, significant birthday parties, you know, and it, yeah, it's just, it's really sweet and we're not, we're not ever nasty or mean about it. But it's not really realistic for that to happen, you know, or certain shows in certain countries that it just wouldn't ever make sense because, you know, they, we would lose money by doing it or whatever. You know, there's loads of situations like that. But then there's also working with, with someone like Paul, there's also places where he'll be like, I've heard about this thing and I want to do it. And it will be quite unknown. Usually that's when it's come from him, though. If that had come from me, it probably would be a slightly different conversation. But And I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing this now, aren't we? And then just a little <laughs> yeah. bit of quality control. Yeah, and it's good. And he should be able to do those things or collaborate with those people, what have you. It's wonderful when you see things like that, like the Black Barn Studios, 
YouTube series that came from here. I'd imagine that was one of those types of things as well that was in Paul's head and suddenly, like, oh, okay, we're doing this. Okay. Yeah. And I love it. Without just sounding really cliched, it's like, oh, yeah, great. Let's do it. Who do you want? And it's, it's always, you know, different artists, some artists that I've never heard of before. And then I get to learn about them. And it's always just good, like a good vibe down here when that happens. Yeah. So you mentioned so the podcast. I'd wanted to do it for, for quite a while. And I'd always struggled with the fact that anybody could just launch a Paul Weller podcast, right? There are loads of fans out there. And it, it came to like one day, it just landed on the fact that as a radio presenter, I'd never got to interview Paul. So that was, that was my yeah. angle. But looking back on it now, three years ago, this was a COVID thing. Like, you know, I was thinking, let's get this thing launched or whatever. It was nuts to launch a thing and then go, oh, the end goal is to interview Paul Weller. I've got no connection with you, with Paul. I haven't asked permission or anything like that, right? So there must be a bit of it where you're kind of seeing this thing and say, oh, what's this? who's this random guy? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit to start with. But, you know, like with most things, it, nothing is ever dismissed, unless it's a ludicrous request, right? Nothing is ever dismissed by me or by Paul, depending on the situation. So you just, but you just sit back and watch it for a little bit. Just see how things progress, see how things evolve, see how the other kind of people that you're interviewing or whatever, or how many people are listening, because that is my job to do that. I wouldn't be diligent mm. if I didn't, you know, and it comes back down to being fairly protective of Paul. And if I ever sit down with Paul, not necessarily with this podcast, but if I ever sit down with him about something and not have all the facts around me. So if I say, hey, do you want to do X, Y, or Z? And he's like, well, yeah, but when's it coming out? Who's who's interviewing me? Will I have to do a photo shoot? Am I getting paid? Not often. That's not often a high priority, but I need to have all of that kind of information to have a serious conversation with him about something. And was that something you learned because you didn't do that like at the beginning maybe or is it just like have you always done that from day one? I mean it's just common sense isn't it really you know and and I get frustrated when people ask me to consider things or do things I'm like but you're not giving there's no context to what you're asking for I just I have to give Paul that context which means I need to understand what's involved in something because I would hate to be in a situation or, or Paul to be in a situation where he's done something that he shouldn't have done. That's never really happened because he will always be the person that says yes or no. But I would be uncomfortable presenting something to him without having those facts around me. What I liked about the fact that this journey, obviously on this podcast over the past three years, we've got Nikki Weller, which is a real key moment. Love we, had, Nikki. You know, we had Anne Weller, which is another episode 100. It's been such an honor to do it through and to speak to the, to hear the stories of all these collaborators and the people and their own stories as well. You know, the creation of their own art, their own music or their own careers has been really fascinating. But what, what I really like is at times where you speak to people like Max Beasley, for instance, and you go, well, let me just check with the governor. Oh, and, yeah. and he message, but it's like, oh yeah, he says you're sound. And you're like, oh, what? Paul Weller says I'm sound? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there are going to be people that would be worried to talk about him in a, an environment that's maybe not safe in terms of you don't know how words can be twisted or edited or what have you. Yeah. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me that certain people might have. And also testament to them being friends. This isn't just yeah, and, and all of these so many of these people that have been on. It's like actually they've got this proper friendship as well. Max is playing on new tracks and, and you know played at Abbey Road with Paul. I gather yeah, as we well. Yeah, saw him right? recently. It was yeah. really lovely. Yeah, I saw the photos and um, so so it's you know they they feel this kind of. This isn't just somebody they worked with once on a song. It's like, actually, this is my mate. So let me just check it's all right, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I haven't heard all of your podcasts, but I've heard a lot of them. (sighs) I know, outrageous. (laughs) Uh, They're all like 5,000 or something by now, aren't they? Um, What's great about your podcast series, I think the diversity of the types of people you've interviewed have been great. And Paul's listened to some, you know, he knew that you were in Amsterdam recently. And I think, you know, if we, you know, if when we do a new record, he'll want you to come down and listen to it. That's just how it goes with Paul. 
earn his trust and do good work and that's it. That diversity though is down to Paul, right? Because yeah. it's like actually when you look at and so, so many talented people that are kind of, I call them the Weller alumni now because, you know, because you, you want to then start promoting the new things that they're doing. Once they've been part of the podcast, I'll continually support and promote them and stuff like that. But you look at the amount of talent that he's, he's just got this real eye for talented people in some Massively. way. Massively. And, and, and it's particularly with new and emerging artists. He devours new music more than anyone that I know. People will send him a lot of new music or he'll go to Rough Trade on Portobello Road, for example, and they will just give, he'll pay for it but they'll they'll have put aside a stack of things that they think he might like and he just discovers new talent all the time and when he does they're often able to come and record here if they need to or he'll support them when he talks about them in the press or on social media well you know i'm always in a situation where i'm just like pushing something that he's done that i didn't maybe even know about at the time and sometimes polly or someone else will be like um what is this i'm like "Mm, i don't really know myself but you know he's (laughs) done it you know and i think that's great about him he keeps it real because he just loves music. And that never gets tired. That, that, that's no. never something where he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to call it a day or anything like that. It's never I don't think he ever could really. And, I, and you know, I've, I've sat, sat in on enough interviews with Paul in the past or heard him do enough phone interviews where he's been sat in the desk opposite me. Well, I mean, I could probably answer all the questions <laughs> before him now, but where they're like, what would you have done if you weren't a musician? And it's like, if someone was to ask me that about him, I genuinely wouldn't know what he would have done if he wasn't a musician. Mm. It's just in his blood. Yeah. Let me ask you, before we wrap up, let me ask you about Ripley yeah. and this place here, because it's obviously got a very special vibe, not just the studio, but the village in Surrey as well. And the lovely little connections. So we've got the the nest up the road, the little coffee shop. Yep. We've got um, the Ripley Curry Garden. Oh my goodness, best curry in the world, according to Paul <laughs> and many other people, which is do lovely. You, do you love a curry from there? Well, we, we love a curry. <laughs> <laughs> but they, I love the fact that they get in like credit on albums and I know they did, that, that did happen a while ago didn't it you know and not only that I mean Liz who I didn't mention actually when you asked me about the core team here Liz who's our cleaner who looking after the studio and some of the cottages you know is of equal as as any of us as she should be and she's been credited on on albums before because that's just what it it's like him, what Paul's like as a person. You know, he's just a good bloke. Yeah, but that's made my job so much easier of like you're just scanning album covers to find because everybody's always getting a credit, which is brilliant. That's not normal of most artists. Yeah, that's true. You know, that is true. It's so, yeah, so thanks for that, Paul. Appreciate it. Right. <laughs> I have two final questions for you. Yeah, I know what they are. <laughs> Just go to the straight to the You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. What are you going to go with? Um, that was a really easy one for me. I didn't have to give it any thought at all because it's actually one of my favourite records of all time, not just Paul's, of anyone's, and that's Gravity. <sighs> that's one of my favourite records. My, 100% my favourite record of his, but my fav- one of my favourite records by any artist. I think it's a masterpiece and I think it's beautiful. And I think the video we did for it that Johnny Harris directed was amazing. And I just love Gravity. And that existed for quite a while before yeah. True Meanings. And Paul's talked about building an album around that song. And you, so another one where you've heard it develop where suddenly, you know, their strings are being added much later and all that as well, right? Yeah, definitely. And sometimes I hear tracks like that. And I loved that track immediately. And was bemused when it didn't get on the next record or whatever. But, you know, going back to that thing where sometimes I have my inner questions about things, but Paul's always right on the whole, especially creatively, he's always right. It was right to keep that back. Isn't it amazing, though, that we're, like I say, we're on the European tour at the time of recording here. There are no songs from that album on that set list whatsoever. And I remember Steve Pilgrim talking on the podcast and saying, he'd like a list of all the songs that Weller's ever written to be able to take into like a rehearsal, just suggest a few or whatever. But isn't it remarkable that, I mean, that is a masterpiece, that album. 
album from my point of view. And it's, True it's, meanings. It, but there's nothing in the current set list of that, 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 that album. No, at I all. know. I actually remember talking to Steve Pilgrim. I remember when he first heard that. Paul bought it. We were at Dublin, we're at the Olympia in Dublin. We were doing a few nights there. And Paul, he must have just mastered the record or finished it or something. And he was he was playing it in the dressing room to all of the band. And Steve, in particular, because it's largely an acoustic record and Steve's a singer songwriter himself and a very talented one, he was just, I just remember his reaction. He was just like mind blown. Oh, that's the best thing I've ever heard, you know. And he was right. It was an amazing, amazing, amazing record. The photos we did for it were amazing. Mm. Everything about that record was just beautiful, I thought. So Gravity is my track. Cool. All right. Well, let's get in the set list, please, Mr. Weller. That'd be lovely. Final question. So you know this, the purpose of this podcast, (laughs) I mean, what a bold ask it was at the beginning, but hey, the purpose of this podcast was for me to get the interview with Mr. Weller that I never managed, never had during my radio career. It was my one big regret from giving up my radio career that I never got to interview Paul. So if it happens... Yeah. (coughs) Yeah. If it happens, uh, what should I ask him? And also, I guess what I I want to also want to know, what should I not ask him? (laughs) Yeah, I think what you should ask him, I think you should ask him anything. Honestly, I think he's the sort of person, if he didn't want to answer a question, he just would not answer it. But he's really open these days. In general, as a person, I think he's really open to talk about life, being, you know, being spiritual, not spiritual, politics or not political, whatever. So I feel like you should ask him anything because you've put so much effort and work into your podcast series that, you know, you should be able to ask him what you want to ask him. That was the whole end game of this. Uh, what not to ask him for me is what do you want for your birthday? <laughs> I mean, he must be very hard to buy for. He though, is but. <laughs> the hardest person to buy for, and it's something. Yeah, you know, Hannah, his wife, has that trouble as well. And yeah, none of us ever know what to buy him. You ask him, and he goes, uh, "Nothing." And so of late, we've just been donating money to charity on oh, his really? behalf for his birthday because we like to sort of club together. Uh, yeah, so I, I would not ask him what he wants for his birthday. There was a wonderful um, Hannah put on social media. I remember on her Instagram. I think it was after it must have been the last birthday after that, just directly after the tour. And I think there were seventy pairs of black socks in the fireplace. I saw that she yeah. rolled up and put them in the fireplace, and he was lying on because he was knackered off, off the back of a tour, absolutely knackered, yeah. right? And hadn't noticed them in the fireplace. I know. They did look a bit like coal, though, so I can imagine that. Yeah, he does love a good pair of socks. He does love them. We've considered doing that ourselves. Bill always had that idea of getting him a different pair of socks for every day of the year. I'm like, but that's like buying him 365 pairs of socks. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. But yeah, he's impossible to buy for. (laughs) Hey, Claire, Mooney, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Claire Moon, aka Mooney, for joining me on the podcast. What an absolute honour it is. Incredible. One of those pinch me moments. There we are, Blackburn Studios, the main office, having a chat, Paul Weller's manager, the brilliant Claire Moon on the podcast. If you enjoyed that, please do share on your social media channels. It all helps to spread the word. You can find me on X, aka Twitter, at WellerFanPod, or on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Don't forget to go online to my website as well. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can sign up to our newsletter for exclusive information on what's coming next and that big finale. Plus, head into our store for your official podcast merchandise. In there, you'll find the complete 180 mug, the marks, the finale of this incredible series. And if you fancy it, you can get yourself a virtual coffee as well. Doing exactly that over the past week. Andy Young, who says the number of people that have been connected because of their love of the work of Paul Weller must be mind-blowing. 
Thanks, Dan, for shining a light on that, for entertaining us royally over 180 episodes, and I'm so glad you finished it with a mic drop moment. (laughs) Thank you, Andy. Hello to Lena. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Sean Wilson, who says, well done, Dan. Much respect, mate. Thank you, Sean. Hello to Grant. Thanks for your virtual coffee. Hello to Claire T, who says, love the series. Sad it's reaching an end, but also excited for that episode. My favourite shows have to be the female ones. Paul Weller has such a male following, which we often hear about from, so it's been fab to hear the alternative view. Big up Claire Mahoney and the Jam Tarts. Thank you, Claire. Lee Stone. Love the series, mate. It's been a pleasure listening to, and to finally get the man himself makes it the best finale ever, and I'm a little jealous you got to meet him. Well, you know the deal, Lee. You just need to start a podcast, the world's second Paul Weller podcast. Gavin. Superb. From start to finish. Great interviews. Superbly researched. Tuesdays aren't going to be the same. Good luck for the future. Thank you, Gav. Also known as King Truman on Twitter, if you want to check him out. Hello to Steve Perry. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Duncan Essex. Hello to Ian. Hi, John Gleason, who says, thank you, Dan, for many amazing episodes and memories shared. A highlight during the dark days of COVID. All the best for the future. Thank you, John. Leo Gorman says, hi, Dan. Obviously looking forward to the last episode, but sad it's coming to an end. Thank you. It and you have been brilliant. Your endless research and knowledge has brought the best out in all your guests, evoking so many great memories. Thanks again, Lee. Thank you, mate. Hello to Kevin, who says, very well deserved. Thank you, Kev. Hi to Rich Gill, who's got a virtual coffee. Hello to Ben Simmons, who says, elated for you getting the big interview, but gutted for me and everyone who loves the podcast. This podcast has been a staple in my life for the last three years. It will be sorely missed. Dan, you created something amazing, and I'm so glad you'll go out on the ultimate high. Stop it, Ben. You're going to bring me to tears, my friend. Hello to Duncan Kings, who says thanks for everything. Dan, hello to Robbo. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to John Reed. Got to say a massive hi to Mad Matt as well, who says thanks for the insights into the great man's music and those who have contributed. You're now on that list of people who have added to the legend. He says also check out the calls from Leeds. Give them a listen on Spotify. Let us know your thoughts. Album coming next year with artwork by Andy Crofts. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Thank you, Matt. Hello to David Gordon, who says, best podcast ever. Awesome. A Weller state of mind. Probably too early to suggest, but how about a one-off comeback show in 2024? Thank you also to Liz for your virtual coffee as well. Much appreciated. If you want to get involved, do head to my website. Just go to the store. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Coming next, December the 19th, 2023. That's Tuesday, December the 19th. 2023. Just a couple of days before my birthday, by the way. Christmas special. It's here. Paul Weller on the way. Episode 180. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Tell your Weller loving mates, whether it's the Jam, the Star Council, Paul Weller solo. We'll discuss it all. The final episode of Desperately Seeking Paul on the way. Once again, it's December the 19th, 2023. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.